Hi, everyone. Welcome to an episode of Everything is Canon, a Cinelinks podcast, a podcast where we invite marginalized authors from all genres onto the show to discuss their latest books and novels, as well as just about anything else that comes to mind. I'm your host, Steve Dunk, and thanks so much for tuning in. If you want to reach me, there are several ways to do so, but the best way is to email me at steve at cinelinks.com, or you can always find me on Twitter, of course, at stevedunk5 or at everythingcanon. And so, without further ado, let's get the show on the road and meet today's guest. everyone welcome to the show uh as is always the case we will continue to encourage supporting authors and stories that affirm the lives of people other than ourselves each time we either engage in a conversation whether it be online or face-to-face or each time we participate in the market with our purchasing choices of course a reminder february is black history month so while we should be doing things to support black communities all year long this is a time uh, on social media for sure to support share and boost causes and businesses in the black communities as we remember the uh, important people and events in the history of the African diaspora. I'll post some links after uh, different ways and people and business that you can support. So look for those links after the show. Uh, Tochi Onyabuchi is the author of Riot Baby, a finalist for the Hugo, Nebula, Locus, and NAACP Image Awards and the winner of the New England Book Award for Fiction. His short fiction has appeared in Azabov Science Fiction, Amanana um, Magazine, Black Enough Stories of Being Young and Black in America, and elsewhere. His nonfiction has appeared in Tor.com and the Harvard Journal of African American Public Policy, among other places. His most recent book is the nonfiction Skin Folk, but he's here today to talk about his new book, Goliath, which is described as Hugo, Nebula, Locus, and NAACP award finalist in LA. <laughs> Alex in New England Book Award winner Tony Nabucci delivers a sweeping science fiction epic in the vein of Samuel R. Delaney and Station Eleven. That blurb says almost nothing. It's kind of funny, actually. But uh, <laughs> um, please welcome to the show Tochi Onyabuchi. Hi, Tochi. Hello. Hello, Steve. Thank you for having me. Of course. I'm so happy you're back. Um, like I said, we sort of I got to talk to you for We Need Diverse Books, and I just had to have you back on my show where things are a little bit looser and we're allowed to swear and curse. Um, Beautiful. And, uh, <laughs> so it's all good. Um, yes, the uh, files are weird. We talked about this last time, I think. You know, it's always, but you know, mm-hmm. I it feel weird repeating them, saying them to you guys because how many times have you heard it? It must feel weird listening to them. But just going through that preamble, though, I, I am reminded. Um, of our conversation last time when we touched sort of a little bit on uh, speaking of black history month, uh, we touched a little bit on allyship last time. We talked about when some people who put forth an effort, you know, at a very specific time of year and they get to a point where maybe they throw their hands up in the air and say, aren't I doing enough? Uh, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, and I remember last time you said the, the answer, it's never enough. It can never be enough, right? That's too much has happened. And uh, this is of course is important for much of white America because of, you know, February is their time of year when they get to shine. Um, (laughs) And, uh, but there are some ones like, you know, we we talk, um, I'm going to bring up this idea of good intentions in a little bit, but they're asking, and there are people that are going to ask themselves like, you know, what can I do? How can I help? Who can I support? Completely agree with and understand the point of view is it is never enough. It's just, it's, it just isn't, you know, when looking back, you know, at the amount of amount of stuff that's that's occurred and, and will continue to occur and continues to occur to this day. Um, what's your take on Black History Month? Um, mm-hmm. And there are people who believe that Black History Month was sort of limited to educational institutions, right? And the question is whether it was even, even appropriate to to assign a month to it, right? Like it's 
It's almost mm-hmm, obscene. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's obscene in a way, isn't it? You know, there, as opposed to like the integration of black history into the mainstream education the rest of the year, right? Like it's this, it's uh, this, and you could almost apply this to any time we, you know, sort of look at something, give a, assign a month to something, right? Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but black history is, is different, isn't it? Because it is tied to the fucking very foundation of the United States of America, right? 1619. We know, yeah. we know this, right? This is different. It's, it is different. Um, and this idea of people are afraid to do this hero worship type of thing, right? When you assign a day to it, like yesterday with Martin Luther King Jr. Day or uh, a month for Black History Month. And, but it is relevant because, you know, because of things that are happening now, of course, but certainly from an educational point of view, whether it's critical race theory or whatever. But what's your idea? What's your take on that? You know, I think it's, it can be useful in that, you know, people have the opportunity to learn things that they didn't already know. At the same time, it's, of course, fallen prey to the inevitable commodification mm-hmm. um, yeah. of yeah. of any such things. You know, it's it's you know, it's like Christmas. Christmas how, isn't about any sort of like. How far away meaningful... are we? Right. How far away are we from like you, you giving out cards? <laughs> well it's like right. there's there's black history month merch like, right. that, that's what i that's what i mean right like on valentine's day right it's yeah no yeah. it's like there's yeah. gonna be you know it's it's the type of thing where you know I, there's there's a you know black his i don't know if this actually exists but it's totally within the realm of possibility that there is some black history month supreme collab that, that you know with with black history month themed supreme hoodies and ball caps and fitteds and 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 all that sort of thing i mean it's you know it's any sort of any sort of celebration um you know no matter how well intentioned um and even you know arguably if it's a, a concession that's designed to sort of sanitize more revolutionary impulses inevitably gets commodified you know we see this you know with every with every month that's been designated to celebrate um a non-white uh ethnic population and you know because you know we'll see things for instance you know on social media where you know i spend a lot of my time and and can sort of speak a lot to that experience you know there's there's the push to during each of these months support authors uh, that come from these demographics. And, you know, oftentimes those authors are, you know, are doing work that concerns characters from those demographics. And so it's like, buy Black, you know, support Black authors, and you know, during AAPI month, it's like support, support Asian authors, that sort of thing. And, you know, I do pre- appreciate the material benefit that accrues to those authors in that, you know, you're actually putting money in their pockets and ha- helping to materially benefit their circumstances and their situations. At the same time, you know, I, I hope people buy my books year round. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Right. Right. So it's, it's like, and so it like, I think part of it, I think part of it too is, is, you know, it's a sort of, we're, we're stuck with it. You know, and I think what's what's interesting, too, I don't know actually what it's like in schools these days, mm. um, because back in my day, it was, you know, we learned about Booker T. Washington and George Washington Carver in the peanut. <laughs> that was like that was that was it. There was no there was no unit on, on slavery. I I think I don't I don't even know if there was a civil rights thing that we did. But, you know, I I, I went to a school that was run by 
fundamentalist Baptist. So mm. uh, <laughs> my elementary school education wasn't necessarily uh, uh, representative, um, I don't think, of, of a lot of the United States elementary school system. But I do think, you know, presents opportunity, right? For It, it presents opportunity for interesting manifestations of allyship. Um, like, you know, we were talking about earlier, you can have white teachers that are like, okay, I'm going to teach about Patrice Lumumba, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I'm going, you know, I'm going to, to teach a little bit about Malcolm and, and Dr. King, and, and I'm not going to present them as diametrically opposed the way that they're often presented in this sanitized and flattened, um, you know, revisionist history, you know, I'm going to present them not even necessarily as complementary, but as coexisting. Um, and as both necessary forces in the fight for civil rights. I'm going to teach Brown versus Board of Education, like, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that, you know, you might not necessarily get the opportunity for um, otherwise from the powers that be, right? Because so mm-hmm. much of this is down to, to, okay, what the principal or superintendent allows right right um what they what they won't fire you for Mm, um so i think a lot i think a lot of it is that you know something like black history month gives leeway for that sort of thing that you might not have in march through next january right do you think so you know we've we've heard this before too um especially in the marginalized sort of arena when it certainly in publishing right no representation is better than bad representation um (laughs) uh so and thinking sort of sort of like about especially about yesterday because there's this real thing right now where there's a lot of people who are actively actively like trying to dissuade and hold up the voting rights act for example or turning away from some of the more obvious things that are happening on state levels, like redistricting and gerrymandering and all these different types of things. But then we'll come out and say, you know, happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day, you know, post Mm -hmm. something on the affirmative side. And then maybe this goes to February as well a little bit. It would be obscene and obvious. We don't want a situation where they own publishing only wants to release books by black authors in February because they know that's when sales will spike. (laughs) Um, right. So, but, you know, at the same Mm -hmm. time, do we want people just who aren't good intentioned to not say anything? Do we want to just tell them to shut the fuck up altogether? For me, any press, good press, I think maybe is sort of the thing I'm trying to get to, right. As far as February goes, like, yeah, Mm -hmm. it's like, it's like, there's obviously like, it's kind of like a gross thing that, that, that this is Mm -hmm. that this can turn into, but at the same time, it still does maybe make some people aware of, uh, black owned bookstores or bring their attention to certain authors, for example. Yeah, no, I think on the, on the affirmative side, it can be more obvious to see some of the benefits. I mean, the thing, the thing for me is when the FBI tweets Martin Luther King Jr. Day, like it's, you can't, if you put that in a script, for a movie or a TV show, your, yeah. the producers would laugh you out of the room. That that they would you would put that in an Adam McKay movie, and right? Good, like, <laughs> yeah, and good for Wik, good for WikiLeaks to post the letter from FBI, right? Threatening, yeah, threat, threatening like, him with and, uh, whatever or blackmail or yeah, 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 yeah. Like you know, Senator Kirsten Cinema, who who you know is one of the the more obvious sort of antagonists in the the story about the the push for voting rights or for for increased access to uh, the franchise uh, on a legislative level, you know, was tweeting happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Like Mm -hmm. it's, and it is, 
it's hilarious. And but like the thing for me is what changes, right? Like whether or not she tweets, like what is the what's the change in the situation? Like that that hasn't changed her vote. People calling her out on it hasn't changed her vote. Right. You know, that sort of thing. So so a lot of the a lot of the sort of surface platitudes, I think it's it can give people it can give people an easy avenue for catharsis to like point out the hypocrisy of those things. But I don't know that it results in any sort of material changes. And that isn't to say that people shouldn't do that. I mean, get your jokes off. Like that's what Twitter's for. Um, but in terms of materially benefiting, benefiting the, the situation for black Americans uh, in the United States, you know, what does, what does it matter what Kirsten Cinema tweets or what the FBI tweets or what have you? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, yeah. So I'm, I'm a bit of, of, of two minds with, with the thing, you know, in terms of affirmatively drawing attention to ways that you can benefit members of this community. Um, I do think it's, it's helpful, but in terms of, of castigating the more hypocritical, you know, profiteers of this sort of thing, yeah. uh, you know, I don't, I don't know that, that, you know, public condemnation has the same bite that it might've had a couple centuries ago. <laughs> right. Right. And it's, there's, it's a totally, it's a complete black flag situation, right. Where I'm sure there were people rushing home yesterday to make sure they could post uh, an MLK junior hashtag. Yes. <laughs> right? yes. Or, it was, it was a, it, yeah, somebody, yeah. somebody tweeted. It was a, it was a big day for ellipses <laughs> in Dr. King quotes. <laughs> and that, that, that's right, it. That's right. the tweet. Like right. that's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, it's, it, there's this, God, this obligatory black flag situation thing going on, right. Where it's just, yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a strange, it's a strange world we live in, I guess. It's, I don't know what else to call it. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, uh, I, think, yeah. I think what's, I think what's interesting and, and I think the connection to this is somewhat attenuated, but it does occur to me, um, you know, along the same lines as something like black history month. But, you know, recently there was, there was a, a bit of an uproar with, with regards to a biopic of Golda Meir mm. um, that is uh, upcoming starring Helen Mirren. Right. As the as the you know former Israeli prime minister, I believe uh, yep. Golda Meir was. Um, and, you know, the the outrage centered on the fact that she's not Jewish, mm-hmm. um, particularly given that this is this is a I don't even want to say character because it's a real person um, for whom Jewish identity was foundational, was paramount. Yeah. Like it was like it's like that's the character. And so what was fascinating was hearing all the different perspectives from uh, Jewish and Israeli, you know, professionals in entertainment. Some were like, some were like, oh, it doesn't bother me. I believe um, Haggai Levy, who who did the the uh, U.S. adaptation of Scenes from a Marriage, he's Israeli. Um, he's like, it, it doesn't bother me. Like I cast Oscar Isaac as, you know, an Orthodox Jew in mm. my, in my, in my miniseries. And like he, because he's Oscar Isaac and he like just knocked it out of the park. So, you know, it, you know, as the French would say, but others were like, no, this character, this person should have been portrayed. Um, particularly given the centrality of this figure in Israeli history by a Jewish actor, particularly because there, there are relatively few 
opportunities, at least in comparison to Gentiles, for Jewish actors in um, Hollywood, in entertainment, what have you. Um, and that ties to the issue of representation for me, um, because I do think there's there's the the push in in you know publishing, for instance, uh, to try to to capitalize on certain trends by having black authors write black characters mm-hmm. um, and write about issues that are endemic to what are what's stereotypically thought of as the black community in America. And so when you take and then, you know, you'll have this whole whole ecosystem that's that sort of surrounds the idea that, you know, it's 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 the purview of only black authors to write about these issues or to write about these characters. Like mm-hmm. it's it's anathema for a white author to have black protagonists, that sort of thing. Like it's it, it shouldn't be done. You know, you should leave that to black authors who already have so relatively few opportunities in publishing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the thing is that when you start with only black authors can write black characters, you very soon turn into black authors can only write black characters. Right. And that I think, you know, that. Uh, well, that's a losing, that's a losing proposition for black authors. Right. Because exactly. Right. Exactly. Be- yeah. Exactly. Because even if like there's a, there's a sense of inertia in, in publishing, even if they just put a plug, you know, capped off, Mm-hmm. The, the white author, you know, publishing inertia alone would still give us 15 to 20 years of white authored books, right? Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. that are, that are in Hawk mm-hmm. right now that are, that are, they're, you know, in the queue, right? So yeah, um, yep. you, while the percentage is still 89, 11, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a really dangerous situ- point of view, isn't it? Yeah. To your point. Yeah. Because, you know, they're, they're, it's, if and when the playing field you know, ever becomes equal, right across the board, mm-hmm, sure, mm-hmm. I guess. Like, sure, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, and uh, well, yeah. it's it's like that. You know, there there are so many there are so many authors, you know, myself included, who are eager to write about issues outside of yeah. Um, you know, like I I want to you know I want to write a you know and and I don't actually want to write this, but you know hypothetically, what if I want to write a a sci-fi novel about a multiracial crew of space pirates and nobody's black on that crew, right? Yeah. Like it's yeah. it's that sort of thing, right? Yeah. Am I am I shooting myself in the foot, you know, even from a marketing from something as crude as a marketing perspective, by not having a single black character? Am I committing a moral wrong, right, by <laughs> by not having a black character in this multiracial crew of space pirates, right? right like right, because right. I think it very it very quickly turns into that sort of thing where you know the personal decision of an author often will get imbued with a sort of normative judgment. Yeah, you know, it's it's wrong for this author to have done this thing, and you know that in and of itself can be. Like, I don't want to throw the word censorship around, but that in and of itself can be a constraint for a lot of Black authors who I think want to feel the same sense of freedom with regards to tackling subject matter that has traditionally been um, the the ambit of white authors. Mm. Yeah, and it's a lot of that is because it's the wound is raw still, right? Like the nerve has been exposed. Mm-hmm. So there's mm-hmm. this, yeah, so there is this idea that you have to stay in your lane for a little bit longer, mm-hmm. for a little bit longer, right? Whatever that means, however long that happens yep. to be, right? So let's just, mm-hmm. you know, this is this is how it is for now. And when things, like I said, sort of start to tilt in the other direction, 
we can revisit this <laughs> in a way, yeah. right? Like, yeah. yeah. We'll put a pin in it. We'll yeah. Put a pin so in like, it. like to a white author, like, yeah, you know, maybe don't have your lead character be a Muslim just yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Like, or whatever the case may be. Right. Like understand yeah. that that's just not going to happen right now. And it shouldn't. Yeah. And it shouldn't. And, it's, yeah. and, and, but you know, maybe down the road, but not right now. Um, but I like your point. Yeah, that's that. That's also a trap, isn't it, for marginalized authors? Like, be real careful with that about um, boxing yourself in that way, isn't it? That can happen because the industry will like just. Mm-hmm. It almost feels like the industry will just naturally go. It will a, a reflex, right? Almost it won't it be? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So yes, you're here. You're here to talk about Goliath. Anyone can look up the uh, summary online. Please do. Um, it's just you know it's everywhere on on Tochi's website and Goodreads and Google and all that stuff. So I'm not going to read the summary necessarily. But um, uh, one thing we were going to talk about it'll be non. This will be a non spoiler discussion, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. But one thing about uh, Goliath that I found really interesting is the absence of sort of any real governmental body or political will. Um, you know, of course, every act is inherently a political one, right? Especially on this planet. Um, we'll see if the James Webb reveals some other planets where that's not the case, but, uh, uh, I I can't wait for that thing, by the way. I'm so excited to see. I I made a joke the other day. I'm like, what do you think we're going to see? I'm like, well, either the back of our heads or, (laughs) or two eyes staring staring back at us. I don't know. Um, (laughs) but, uh, Goliath seems more like sort of like an associative democracy rather than like a hegemonic one. Um, but to your point, and one of the overall themes is it still favors the plutocratic, doesn't it? Um, mm-hmm. Because even though you never really put a name or face to anything like that necessarily, there's still there's there's no like autocratic imp, is there? Like, it's it's mm-hmm. very clear on the man without a name, the man without a face is still pretty damn similar to the man we got today, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So talk about sort of like writing Goliath. Again, like it is, it is drenched in, in politicality, of course, right? Like every, like everything mm-hmm. is, but you don't, yeah, you don't really, you don't really call it by name. Yeah. I mean, there's, so there's, you know, there's an in-world response to that, that I won't get into, um, but on a more sort of philosophical level, it speaks to what I believe with regards to the impact of federal government on people's lives versus the impact of local government on mm. people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think it's, it's easy to have a despotic president or a despotic, you know, chief executive and have them be the architect of so much pain and suffering and, and, you know, bringing about the apocalypse almost single handedly. Right. Um, that's that's too easy for me. And I think even during the administration of 45, it was very easy to to have him as the, you know, the main villain because, you know, the he was easily the most visible manifestation of a lot of the psychoses and pathologies that were brought to the surface during his four years. But I think that happened to the detriment of paying attention to a lot of the local ways in which people's lives were made extremely worse during that period. Um, Whether with regards to, you know, gun legislation or whether with regards to restrictions on voting rights, which we're seeing now, you know, the, the restrictions on voting rights aren't, aren't federally, you know, legislated, you know, they're not like the, the, 
you know, it's all on the local level. It's all on the state level. I mean, after after the 2013 Supreme Court case, uh, Shelby County versus Holder, it wasn't the federal government that that passed a raft of voter ID laws and all of that stuff. It was state legislatures. You know, that's where that's where people's lives, I feel, are most impacted. You know, board the Board of Education. Um, in states and in counties and what have you has more direct impact on our educational system than the Department of Education uh, federally. And so that I think was something that I wanted to speak to was, you know, it's oftentimes, you know, the effects of politics in people's lives are most acutely felt at the local level. Um, And that to me was much more interesting than having, you know, this sort of analog of, you know, historically despotic or pseudo despotic, you know, American rulers, so to speak. Right. Especially in, in, in more immediate, tangible ways too, especially like, obviously there's a, there's a clear like mm-hmm. delineation between, um, you know, things that happen on a, on a state or federal level, which will affect your life, of course, but then it's the town council that's going to fix your road. Right. Or, mm-hmm. you know, exactly. or, 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 exactly. or, or pay or is the budget for the local fire department that's going to put the, your put your fire out if your house catches on fire or whatever. Um, now, if the whole country's on fire, <laughs> that's right, <laughs> which is the case right now, then the federal, you know, the federal, you know, the quote, quote unquote, federal fire department uh, will have to deal with that one. FEMA, I guess. But even <laughs> but even yeah. in even in even in that even in that circumstance, I think what's interesting, what's been interesting about COVID response has been is is how balkanized it's been. Yeah. So, you know, I currently reside in Connecticut, and and fortunately for us, we have at least relative to to other parts of the country, you know, rather sensible leadership and you know, the vaccination rates and whatnot have ensured that, you know, even with Omicron, our hospitalization and death rates and whatnot have have been um, much lower than in a lot of the country. Mm -hmm. Whereas with other parts of the country, the leadership is almost hell bent on (laughs) on filling the hospitals past capacity, um, on, on ruling their fiefdoms, so to speak, in a way that flies in the face of a lot of public health mandates and, and guidance and, and whatnot. And even in the very beginning with the distribution of PPE, it was done on a state level. It was, it was very much like, um, states themselves were having to bid for these life-saving, this life-saving equipment right, or these right. life-saving items. You know, the disbursement of federal funds went to governors. It wasn't that the federal government was like, okay, you have to spend this on this. You have to spend this on this. It was very much, oh, state, you know, leadership, it's up to you to decide how you want to spend these COVID relief funds. Right. And so I think you have even there, even there, the impact in people's lives is almost completely determined by the the impulses and the actions of their state leadership as opposed and like it's the federal government that often has the resources and whatnot to to enable these things but it's it's oftentimes a matter of how the state leadership or how local leadership utilizes those resources Right. That's and similar sort of like like Canada, for example, our universal health care is the federal government sends money to the provinces. The provinces decide how it's spent. Um, mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, with health care and it's now because this is a health care issue. Yeah, it's our it's our provinces and who, whoever happens to be our premiers at the time decide, you know, how that money is spent 
you know, who gets the masks first, who doesn't, all these different things. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're encountering a lot, encountering a lot of that right now, certainly in provinces where the premiers are, say, right of center or left of center. Uh, and you can see the difference in how the money's spent mm-hmm. and how the mask and things like this and how the PPE are allocated, right? So it's, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, interest. it's always been interesting to me about the U.S., how that, how it is so, so many decisions are made on the state level and the differences from state to state and depending on whether they're red or blue, <laughs> right? Or mm-hmm, exactly. Uh, and then you get to the state, and then of course that breaks down even further with the state assemblies, right? Mm-hmm. The, the state senators and legislators and all this stuff. So it's like that's the real. That's where the real soul of America is being fought for, isn't it? Almost at these at these state assemblies, not not this the big show that's happening in Washington necessarily, right? It's all these local, like you said, more localized mm-hmm. these non-local things that are happening, and yeah, it's quite a thing. Um, we talked last time about your mom briefly. Uh, it was more of just about talking about, you mentioned how she was able to maintain a lot of grace, right? Throughout her life, through mm-hmm. some of the, through, through some of the, the, the tough hills and, and things she's had to, to go through in her own life and, and uh, with your family in less than ideal situations. Um, I've, you know, you know, I've never met other than, you know, virtually digitally, <laughs> I've, I've seen you on many count, countless panels and, and whatever. You seem to carry yourself with a certain amount of that as well. I assume you get that from your mother. Um, but that's a theme in Goliath, especially one that's sort of passed down from the elder statesman, like somebody like a bishop, for example, right? It's always trying to instill mm-hmm. still that to the younger black characters in the book. Like, of course, be mad, be angry, but never let them see you sweat. Never let them see you without hope. Um, mm-hmm. Talk about sort of injecting Goliath with, with that message. Some of it is, you know, as we've seen throughout the history of, of African-Americans in the United States, you know, a a defense mechanism, or at least, a, you know, something, something of a protective shell such that, you know, oh, if they see that they've, they've gotten you, then, you know, that, that lets them know that they've won, and they can't know that they've won, you know, that like that sort of thing, right? Or, you know, you're not only you're not only putting on and I don't even want to say putting on this act, but you know, in some ways, it is a performance, You're not only putting on this performance to let them know that they haven't won. You're putting on this performance to let your compatriots, your family, your neighborhood know that they haven't won. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's so much of it is about maintaining hope in the community. And if you see someone else who is able to maintain that grace under fire, so to speak, was able to contain the to, to comport themselves with that aplomb, with that dignity, you know, it gives you something, it gives you a very tangible um, thing to reach for. You know, it lets you know what that sort of thing looks like. And I think oftentimes with despair and with lack of hope, it's difficult to visualize that sort of thing. It's difficult to imagine that sort of thing. Um, But when you can see it, then that makes it even easier to be it. Um, And I think, you know, on on an individual level and on an internal level, you know, I think there's this, there can be this notion that if you pretend it's, it's sort of a fake it till you make it type thing. If you pretend, you know, if you, if you pretend to be, you know, this person that's able to carry themselves with dignity and with grace and aplomb, eventually you will become that. I remember there's, there was a scene in, in the Americans that, that still sticks with me to this day. It's in one of the earlier seasons and, you know, this, this couple that's, you know, uh, undercover KGB agents in the United States under the cover of being a family, right? Mm-hmm. Um, such that the, you know, the father and mother, Philip and Elizabeth Jennings, 
they're the undercover Russian agents, but their kids have no idea. They have two kids together who have no idea that their their parents are, you know, KGB spies during the Cold War, like during the Reagan presidency. Um, and the marriage is on the rocks. You know, it's it's in the process of falling apart. And Elizabeth, I believe at this point, is thinking about separating from from Philip. Um, she doesn't love him um, and can't bring herself to. It's gotten to the point where the performance of the marriage is is incredibly taxing for her. And she can't, you know, she can't keep it going. And I believe it's a conversation that she's having with her handler. Um, it may be another character, but I have it in my memory is her talking with her handler who advises her, just pretend you love him. Go through the motions, do the things that a person who cares for their husband would do. And if you do them long enough, eventually your heart will catch up to your hands. You know, your, your, your feelings will begin to match your actions. And that was such a striking sentiment to me, right? Because it almost seemed like putting the cart before the horse, right? Mm -hmm. You're supposed to believe in the thing that you're doing and then do it, right? As opposed to doing the thing and eventually you'll believe in the thing that you're doing. It's um, almost like, same- it's almost like self doctrination. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's like no, self-administered like, indoctrination. Yeah. 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 It, you know, it's, it's habits, right? You, yeah. you start at, you, you start an action and if you do it long enough, it becomes a habit. You know, that's, that's the, you know, the, the philosophy behind all these new year's resolutions, like, Oh, right. I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to eat healthy and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, if I can get myself to do these things long enough, then eventually I will catch up to myself in doing these things. And so right. I think if you pretend to have it all together, so to speak, uh, in a lot of these oppressive situations for long enough, you know, eventually your heart can catch up to your hands and you can feel, you can, you can achieve a, a sense of, a sense of peace, a, a sense of self-actualization that you might not have otherwise had because you've gotten in the habit of doing these things that you didn't necessarily believe in to begin with. Um, but that have by force of habit, you know, taking your mind and your heart with you, so to speak. Yeah. It's also a proxy deal too, right? Where, you know, in Goliath for sure. And then, you know, because Goliath mirrors so much of of today in real life, it's, it's a battle for the hearts and minds in a lot of ways, isn't it? And, Mm -hmm. you know, of course, guns, weapons, robots, automation, all these things that, you know, are the the physical aspects of, of fighting a war are, are, you know, things we sort of jump to and think of immediately, but really like this, this idea where, yeah, we are fighting, fighting for the hearts and minds of, of a people. And that is all is really the final blow, isn't it? In a lot of ways. And, mm-hmm. you know, if, and, and to your point, if you can maintain that or just at least hang on to it long enough to where you really just to, to where you convince not only yourself, but infect the people around you. And then that spreads. And I mean, that's, I mean, that's, we're talking revolution at that point, aren't we? Like, it's an amazing thing, mm-hmm. isn't it? Where the power of, of that type of thought, that type of philosophy is so powerful and, and spreads much more quickly. Like, you know, you run out of ammo, <laughs> right? You can run yeah. out of, right? Yeah. Like, you know, you can run out of these things, but you can't run out of, of that, right? Of, of thoughts and, yeah. and, and words. And uh, it's a powerful, powerful message in Goliath. And I really you know, leaned into that so much. I remember when I was reading it the first time, especially um, it, it made me start to think about sort of like, we talked about this last time and I wanted to make sure that I revisited it about, you know, how you pick your stories, how do you choose the stories mm-hmm. you want to tell? And we talked about, is it, you know, do you, do you like 
uncomfortable situations for yourself? Do you still find yourself in them? And, and do you choose stories based on an opportunity to learn something new, something new about yourself? That can be something new about somebody else. That can just be something new about a different part of the world or, or, techno, or a, maybe an aspect of technology that you weren't familiar with. Is it, this is more of a process question, but yeah, talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, I I love learning. Like yeah. I, you know, that's why I'm constantly window shopping PhD programs every couple of years or so. <laughs> is, you know, I just love learning. I just love learning new shit and learning yeah. about new shit. Like, you know, uh early on in the in the pandemic, I I audited a language class um here at Yale. I I started learning Korean for like because I could, right? Mm-hmm. Like because because I wanted to because I wanted to to learn something and also too there was the the functionality aspect of it i didn't want to necessarily jump into an art history course although i you know there are benefits to that um but there is there is that sense of writing into something that i don't know about um which i is a, is which is a very strong impetus for me a very strong engine for me uh i want you know, I want, I want to learn new things, but also too about myself. And so it's those two things braided together that, you know, that so far have kept me from writing auto fiction, right. Or writing a book that's entirely about the interiority of some analog of me. Right. Mm, Yeah. Um, I like, I just, I, I love learning. Um, oftentimes it's, it's as, it's as simple as, as that, um, and with regards to, you know, writing into uncomfortable situations, like this was something that I that I really realized about myself um, when I was doing my MFA is that oftentimes the best stuff that I write is is when I when I run towards what I'm scared of. You know, mm-hmm. there's a sort of counterphobic impulse, right? Um, when I write into my fears, like that produces some of my best work, at least so far it's produced like almost all of my, my best work. And I like, I don't, I can't necessarily explain that. I don't know. I don't know the machinery behind that. Um, I don't even know how the spell works. Um, It's just, it's one of those aspects of writing that does still carry with itself that sense of, of magic, of alchemy. Um, if I write into the things that hurt, if I write into the things that scare me, oftentimes it can be the only way that I'm able to really, truly confront that thing or deal with that thing. Um, you know, that and talk therapy, but, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's a way for me to articulate the contours of a particular monster, monster Mm. or a particular fear or what have you. Also too, it produces some of the best drama and conflict right. that as a storyteller, I'm constantly hunting for. Um, and there's, and I'm sure there's a straight line between, you know, if we look at human history between that, you know, between the, the our greatest achievements as, as humans, whether that's in invention or just mm-hmm. through, or through uh, some type of uh, charitable activity, there's gotta be a straight line between those things and, having to confront fear or forcing ourselves into uncomfortable mm-hmm. situations. And, you know, ve- mm-hmm. you know, I, I doubt very few of the greatest things that we've achieved or enjoyed today were, were made by, you know, people who unfortunately chose flight over fight or um, ch- chose, you know, chose to just sit in the basement and play video games rather than, you know, go protest in the streets or what, you know, whatever the situation is, you know, so <laughs> it, yeah. sounds, it sounds like, it sounds like one of those old Apple commercials. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't mean to buy Apple. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's you're right. And I don't mean it to, um, but it's actually, it's so funny. I was thinking the other day, remember the early Apple stores when they would fucking like obscenely wallpaper their walls with bookshelves, pictures of bookshelves. Yep. 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 Remember that? That was awful. Yep. Was that, um, was that the was that the Justin Long era? Of I think, Apple yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it might have been. I think it might have been. Yeah, right. Like I'm just, a Mac. You're a PC. Yep. Remember that? Oh God! And, and they would. I don't know if it was wallpaper or paint, but they made it. Tried to make it look like bookshelf. Oh man, obscene. Yeah. Yep. Um, yep. So, putting a pin in that conversation, then if if that's sort of your frame of mind, it sounds like all of the time or most of it. Uh, what did you learn? For, what did Goliath teach you then? What was something that you know, you really dug into when it came to writing Goliath. As far as I learning, learned some, learning something new or or put your, putting Certainly. yourself in an uncomfortable situation. Yeah. I learned a lot more about climate collapse, right. a lot more about climate collapse. I learned a lot more about, you know, in, environmentalism. Um, mm-hmm. I learned a lot more about a lot of the local and individual ways in which um, climate change manifests itself and by proxy climate despair manifests itself. Um, I learned a lot about people's capacity to deal and adapt with these things. And that's everything from, you know, the denial that's exhibited by, you know, the, the powers that be, the plutocrats, the, the you know, the, the wealthy, what have you, all the way to the, you know, let me try and, and, and cohabitate with this land that's trying to expel me. Let me try to have a less antagonistic relationship um, with this planet, with this neighborhood, you know, with this forest. Um, I learned a lot about that, that I, that I just didn't really know or even think about before, you know, one of the, you know, some of the major preoccupations in, in Riot Baby are relational between people and, you know, between people and institutions and what have you. There's no, there's no real concern with environmentalism in, in Riot Baby, unless you're, you know, maybe you're looking on an allegorical level or, or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I didn't really at that time and, you know, before a lot of Goliath truly understand the centrality of climate issues in not just the United States and not just in urban environments, but across the world. Um, you know, we're, we're looking at, you know, there was recently that explosion of that, uh, I believe it was an underwater volcano. Oh, in, Tong- um, in Tonga, yeah. In, in Tonga, yeah. yeah. And, and you know, it's, you know, it's very difficult to not see a connection between that and climate change and the mm-hmm. warming of the, of the planet, right? You know, there were recently snowstorms in the South. <laughs> like, it's, it's very difficult to look at that and not see um, climate change or not see the, 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 um, you know, the effects of climate right. change. And it's funny because it, it's sort of like last time we talked about hyper objects where these are like not hyper objects because you can clearly see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? it's yeah. yeah. It's happening. Yeah. It's happening. It's, it's absolutely happening. I mean, you know, you see the, the desertification of the Sahara is pushing Fulani herdsmen deeper and deeper into Nigeria, causing clashes with not just pastoralists, but others that are just living in other Nigerians that are just living in their places to create a security crisis for Nigeria that was even bigger than Boko Haram. Mm-hmm. And that's because the Sahara is getting drier. Mm-hmm. Like that's climate change and the security effects of climate change. And I like, I just didn't, 
I didn't realize those things before I set out to write Goliath. Um, and so in many ways, that was very educational for me. Um, and it, you know, it had me working through a lot of my own feelings with regards to the climate. I mean, one of the, one of the sort of engines, at least with regards to the conception of Goliath was, okay, what's the world going to look like for me specifically at this age that I'm at now um, in 20, 30 years? You know, what's, what's, you know, what is a conceivable reality um, for me at this age with my background, et cetera, et cetera, um, that, you know, a couple decades into the future. And that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why, you know, I didn't write a story about like kids set in 2050, right? Or like exclusively old people who still remember the, the you know, good old days, et cetera, et cetera, um, set in 2050. Like I, a lot of it, you know, a lot of it is, is people, you know, a lot of my thinking with, you know, with regards to Goliath and behind Goliath was, okay, um, you know, Bishop is only, a, you know, will be only a little bit older than me. Mm. And that was interesting to think about. That was very interesting to think about. When I get to his age, what will I have seen? <laughs> right. And what will that have done to me? You right. know? Right. Well, it's, we, I talk about like a very, very good friend of mine. We're very like-minded. We have these sort of discussions all the time about, you know, it's, it's that men in black line. It's like, what will we know tomorrow? <laughs> right. Like, yeah, no, exactly. And, uh, it's, and we were, and actually it's funny. I'll, I'll, I have to give you some credit here. I, you know, stole one of your stories. I was, we were talking about having a climate change discussion. Um, and I, I mentioned that in talking to you and your story about talking to one of the scientists who were part of the CPC report and, and you know, one of their strategies is is just to wait some people out, like some of the people, <laughs> yeah. right? Right? Remember that about just waiting for the old yep. curmudgeons to just die, <laughs> so they can, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, talking about that, you know, from a client chain's perspective, and, and we had a sort of uh, a good chat about that. But um, you know, this this has a lot to do with. I want to sort of wrap up talking about sort of good intentions here, and uh, you know, one of the interesting things. There's a lot of lot of this in in Goliath for sure, and but you know, to all those things you just said which are clear to me uh, and concise as far as evidence is concerned that the world is, you know, the climate is changing dramatically. Um, mm -hmm. And yet some people will just choose not to see that. And mm -hmm. right. It, you could present them the same story, right. The same, whether it's a, whether it's an mm -hmm. article or mm -hmm. a clipping or a video, a YouTube clip or whatever, and you'll, you can present them the exact same thing and they just don't see it, choose not to see it, whatever the situation is. And I was watching a Richard Pryor clip earlier in one of his older interviews. He was on one of these just, you know, boring talk shows they used to have back in the 70s, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, uh, and they would bring out these wonderful artists of the, of the time. And, and you could tell they're never prepared for yep. having a real yep. conversation. And uh, so he was talking about his sort of his anti-capitalist point of view. And um, he made an interesting point about, you know, there are people that go in with good intentions, but the system... Uh, is set up so it either breaks their spirit or just destroys them altogether. And how mm -hmm. people who engage in capitalism, they are unwittingly or winningly part of a racist system. I mentioned this because last time you made a really great, we had a really great talk and you had a really great, uh, you, you're talking about hyper objects and how you use that as, as a way to talk about systematic racial abuse as well. Right. Not just, a, not mm -hmm. just, not just as a climate uh, point of view. Mm -hmm. 
talk about good intentions because there are so talking about you know like i said there are people that can look at the same clip and not see the same things that maybe you or i see as far as climate change is concerned right and then again class mm -hmm. and class warfare and race structure and all these different things these people that have good intentions i'm not one of these people who thinks every single person in the entire government of the united states at whatever level is a, f a fucking piece of shit Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I just don't, I just, mm -hmm. maybe it, maybe I'm naive. <laughs> maybe they are. <laughs> I, I, I just, I just I, but I also am a big believer in math and there's just too many of them, right? Like, I mean, yeah. you include every yeah. single po politician in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. well, I, it's in the thousands of people, right? I just, mm -hmm. I, I just, maybe just, maybe I need it more than I believe it, but I want to believe that, you know, there are some, yeah. good, there are some good intention people still left, but the system isn't set up that way, is it? talk and, and that mm -hmm. comes up to me a little bit in goliath too right where there are some people with good intentions but it's it's tough isn't it yeah it's you know they folks that will have good intentions i mean the problem i think for me uh comes from you know if and when they think those good intentions will absolve them of whatever detrimental consequences their actions have on you know, whatever community they're, they're involved in or responding to or what have you. Oh, but I meant well, right? So what the fuck does that mean? Like, like I've still lost my home because of, you know, X thing that you did, right? Oh, you meant well. What does that mean? Oh, my, you know, wasn't my intention to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think there's like, room? Granted. Yeah. I was hmm? going to do you and, think there's, and, sorry, do you think there's room for consequentialism in, in politics? Like, do you think, cause I'm a consequentialist, so I don't think an action is good mm -hmm. or bad until, until the result is determined to be good or bad. Right. So like, uh, the, the mm -hmm. easiest, the easiest one is, you know, stealing a loaf of bread to feed your family. We all agree stealing is wrong, but yeah, I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. And then, and then a more severe example would be like, would you go back in time to kill Hitler or something? I don't know, but whatever. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the most stunning, one of the most stunning depictions of, you know, good intentions and how they're insufficient is the Steve McQueen film, Small Axe, right. John Boyega, um, where, you know, he's he's this this black Brit whose father is, you know, has been repeatedly and historically assaulted by police um, simply by by dint of his skin color and his his ethnic background. And his son, played by John Boyega, decides I'm going to become police. I'm going to do it because I think that I can help reform the police department. I think I can help, you know, because I come from this community and because I know this community, I can help improve relations between the police and this community. And over the course of the film, you see, you see just what he's up against and you see him realize just what he's up against. And you see him fight to keep from realizing just what he's up against until you get to the end where he's just completely broken. And he literally says to his father, I, you know, sometimes I just want to burn it all down. And then the credits roll. And there's no, you know, deliverance. There's no, you know, kernel of hope in that film or in its ending there's no there there's no even you know um you know pre-credits like listing of outcomes or things that happened or whatever that sometimes you'll see in movies that that will either affirm the movie's ending or undercut it for you know dramatic purposes it was just that it was just john boyega's character saying that and that was the end. Um, and I think that speaks so poignantly to the insufficiency of good intentions. Um, now, with regards to consequentialism, I think 
I think it's context dependent, you mm-hmm. know, with regards to whether or not I'm a, I'm a consequentialist. It's one of those things where it's like, okay, to save, to save a thousand people, is it okay to kill 20? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like that sort of thing. Right. Um, it's, you know, I think, I think, it's, you know, it's minority, it's minority, to- minority reporters too. Right. Like, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's like, okay, if I, you know, if I want to get rights for, you know, it's, it's sort of, it, you know, one of the things that it reminds me of thinking about it now is the suffragette movement where it's like, okay, if I want, if I want women to be able to vote, I have to throw black women under the bus. I have right. to throw black people under the bus. Right. right? right. And it's like, you know, the expansion of the political franchise is inherently a good thing, right? Like that's the thing that we want, but at the same time, is this the way that we want to go about it? Is right. this the way that we want it to be, to be achieved? You know, for for slavery to be ended uh, in the United States, seven hundred fifty thousand Americans had to die. Like that was that was the price. That was the right. <laughs> that was that was the you know that was the price on the bill um, for the you know ostensibly the end of chattel slavery in the United States, um, and. A lot of those, a lot of those people are what might have been called like morally upright people, or or people that were innocent of various crimes or what have you, or people that, you know, quote unquote, didn't deserve to die, right? Um, so it's, you know, I I think it's it's interesting and complicated with regards to good intentions, but I think ultimately good intentions in and of themselves are insufficient because at the end of the day, you have to reckon with the harm or the good that you that that has been done right well that's the beauty of consequentialism is you don't have to make a decision until after it's over <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah exactly. right? i'm gonna just wait this one out <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna see how, i'll give you my opinion when i have fall. all the facts yeah 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 Ex- exactly it's, exactly it's, it's a it's a post hoc argument right like uh mm-hmm. you know start with the, it's 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 almost conspiratorial where you, you start with a with a desired outcome and then work your way backwards right but um mm-hmm. yeah no it's trust me it's a good situation to be in especially especially if you're like in an art in a debate where you're trying to avoid fallacies yep. right? <laughs> oh very, very rhetorically convenient <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um okay very last question what gets you, uh, what do you get a kick out of more when somebody says they just enjoyed the fuck out of your book or they learned something from your book? Oh my goodness. That is a fascinating question. Um, I think the learning, cause I don't, because know you are, because, because you, yeah. you in particular, uh, mm-hmm. and no offense to sort of like these people who write just breezy romance stories, which are great, obviously, you know, mm-hmm. great storytellers, great writers, nothing against them at all. Um, let me just say that I find you to be not only a storyteller, but an ed, but a teacher as well. Mm. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because I don't expect my books to be enjoyed per se. Like if you've read Riot Baby and the and publisher does lot, <laughs> like, exa- like, and it's, it's, yeah. I mean, I think if we say enjoy, we mean a very sort of, it, we, we take a very elastic definition of the yeah. term enjoy, yeah. you know, it's not necessarily yeah. enjoy as traditionally, uh, conceptualized. And so it's always, there's always a, like a, a, a teardrops worth of shock whenever I hear that somebody enjoyed my book. Well, at least depending on who the person is and what their demographic background, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's more obvious to me when somebody says, Oh, I learned something in part because like learning is part of my own process writing the book. And so, you know, that's, you know, the, the, 
making external of that sort of thing can often feel like mission accomplished. Like I, I, I did my job. Mm. Um, I think also too, I don't know that, that I'm, I, I mean, the, a challenge I would very much like to take on at some point in my writing career is writing an enjoyable book, like a purely enjoyable book and a, and a book that doesn't force you to, to hyperextend your definition of the word enjoy. Um, I recently finished watching Money Heist, mm-hmm. um, this, this Spanish um, crime series on Netflix, which at one time I, I believe was like the most popular show on Netflix. Um, and it was so enjoyable. It was so good and enjoyable. And it made me feel all of the feelings. And I want to be able to do that at some point. I don't know that I currently have the skills to do that. And it might just be that my current preoccupations as a storyteller are sort of preventing me from getting to that place. Um, but it's something that I would very much like to do. I mean, my hats off to to writers who are able to to pull that off to, you know, not just romance writers, but, you know, people in the hope punk genre in SFF, you know, people that do that sort of thing across genres and across mediums. Um, I, I want to be able to get there at some point. And I think part of it too, is I, I want to be able to add that book to my oeuvre, so to speak. Yeah. And so that isn't to say that writing that enjoyable book erases all the work that I've done before. No. Um, it, it, it adds to it. And it tells me that I am capable of that sort of thing because this, oh man, this is a dark place to live in. Like doing yeah. these books, it's emotionally taxing. And so, you know, I'd like to be able to give pleasure and enjoyment to another reader, but also too, I'd, I'd really appreciate the spiritual reprieve that comes from writing a purely enjoyable book. Yeah. I remember you saying <laughs> that about nice. Rye Baby. That, that, I remember you saying about Rye Baby, the reason it was so short. Um, yeah was because you just couldn't live in that world any long, any a, 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 a single digit longer <laughs> a yeah, single yeah. a single you know single sentence longer yeah yeah i couldn't i couldn't yeah. go to page 177 <laughs> <laughs> i didn't have it in yet um uh tochionyubuchi.com is the place to go to find out everything you need to know um please 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 buy this book i love it um i think it's fantastic i both learned something and enjoyed it I can honestly say I'm a little <laughs> depressed. I'm a little depressed. The copy I'm, I'm just holding the arc still. And, and w- the first thing in the marketing campaign is a national author tour. <laughs> it's so sad. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> nope. Womp, womp. Womp, womp, womp. <laughs> yeah. Not yet. Not yet. But not I, lo- yet. I love their optimism uh, when they printed yes. that. But um, yeah, not yet. But uh, you'll be doing all the usual stuff, I imagine, with this. And mm-hmm. uh, Tochi, I just can't thank you enough. I appreciate it so much. And uh, I always enjoy when I get a chance to talk to you. So thank you so much. Oh, dude, my pleasure. My pleasure. There you have it. Another episode of Everything is Canon all wrapped up. Huge thanks to Tochi for stopping by to talk all things Goliath. It's out now, so pick up a copy wherever you buy your books and head on over to tochionyabuchi.com for more information. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you choose to listen and head on over to cinelinks.com for the latest movie, TV, books, and gaming news. Please continue to be safe out there. Bye for now. And, 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 and there's no objection.